Specialty Story, session number 73. Whether you're a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. In this podcast, we'll share the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information you need to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Now, welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here almost every week, as often as I can. I would love to bring you guests every week if I had access to as many physicians as you could get me. Now, a lot of you still email me recommendations for specialties, I ask that you email me physicians of those specialties as well. Now this week we have Dr. Scott Harper, who is a family medicine trained geriatrics specialist. Now Dr. Harper has been out of training for eight years and is in an academic medical center at Wake Forest Medical School. He talks all about his journey to geriatric medicine and what it takes to get there, what he likes about it, what he doesn't like about it, and so much more. We start the conversation by talking about and and finding out about what first interested Scott in geriatric medicine. I think I trace that back to my medical school experience, although it was strengthened by some of my experiences subsequently. Uh, But I just found as I was going through some of my clinical rotations um, and even some of the clinic experiences that we had interspersed through our basic sciences year. Um, When I was working with patients, I was kind of drawn most to uh, the extremes of age. Um, So I like had had vision this practice that included um, kids and babies and also um, older adults and folks kind of nearing the end of their life. Just kind of seems like a unique challenge and different goal setting and different communication skills, you know, kind of having to triangulate with caregivers and use um, clues outside of verbal feedback in a lot of those instances. And kind of wanting to involve both of those groups led me to think about family medicine as a career. And then uh, once I was in family medicine for a residency, uh, I had a an almost exclusively geriatric population in my clinic practice. You know, we get, we get a few days each week as a resident to kind of develop a uh, primary care practice, and and mine was chock full of complicated older adults. I did not feel like I had the skill set to to take care of all their needs and kind of the ways that all their needs interacted with one another and with the community and with their kind of limited resources. And and so those were some of my goals um, going into geriatrics subsequently to kind of do a better job by that population that was leaning on me for their care. Did you have any exposure when you were younger to to older people, like grandparents living with you? Were you around old people a lot or elderly people to to kind of get that experience? Or was it just something through medical school that you were like, oh, that's kind of interesting? Well, I had, um, I would, I think probably like an, a relatively common exposure to older adults. You know, I, I uh, my grandparents were certainly kind of at the forefront of that and, and had kind of the benefit of several tight, um, family friends. When I was real little, we would kind of travel. Um, so I was with several generations. So I got to know some of my friends, grandparents also. Um, and then uh, corresponding to my medical school experience, like those same years, my granddad, my dad's dad was um, kind of entering the first stages of Alzheimer's disease, or at least it was kind of first evident to 
those of us in his family that he was having those problems, which kind of bolstered my interest. Um, he was at the time living in Stanton, Virginia, and I was in medical school at University of Virginia, kind of just over the mountains from Stanton, and I would go visit him every so often. And I had this memory of riding with him in his car, and he he was stopping at every stoplight, regardless of the color or the light, um, which kind of, even though I was not a skilled geriatrician yet, it was, it was a clue to me that something was amiss. And so I'm getting to see kind of how his disease progressed and all the challenges, especially because his family was not in the same town. You know, my dad was in Richmond, Virginia, and his sister was in Kentucky, just kind of like how, how challenging it is to rally folks around somebody who's, who's failing at the end of their life. What traits do you think lead to somebody being a good geriatrician? I think a few things that come to my mind um, is patience. You know, you think you gotta you gotta be comfortable with things moving slowly because I don't know that you have a choice with most of those with most of those patients that you take care of. Kind of they move slowly and um, talk slowly, and a lot of times, like the content is very rich, but it doesn't come out in a rush. You also have to be comfortable with complexity. Like it appeals to me, and I assume and experience that it appeals to a lot of geriatricians. Um, that no one one problem, no one consideration in an older adult it like exists in a silo. You know, they kind of have ripple effects, um, vision impacts function and hearing impacts function and if the heart fails, it can impact the kidneys and if the kidneys fail, vice versa. So I guess maybe the flip side is if you kind of really liked the idea of just being able to identify a single problem and treat it successfully and the patient would then be kind of finished coming to your office for that problem it may not be the uh, be the field for you but if you kind of like being able to navigate how all these things interact with one another and that you may never have kind of a perfect answer for what's going on with the patient but instead kind of being able to to tweak and optimize several different realms um, it may it may very much appeal to you some people may hear that that word complexity and they, they'll think acuity when you're seeing your patients is there any acuity in what you're doing with them, or is it just really complexity? There's just a lot going on. Well, it runs it runs the gamut. You know, I think of both of those things um, could be true, but they don't both have to be true. Like one of the one of the neat things about my job, which is not super common for geriatricians, and geriatrics by itself is not a super common field to go into, but is that I do a lot of geriatric primary care, so I get to see people kind of coming in for any anything from they've got an, an infected toenail, which would be, I guess, sort of acute but not very complex, to, you know, chronic disease management of 10 or 12 comorbid conditions, or sometimes very acute issue. They're delirious or they've got acute infection, and we have to triage them to the hospital or to the emergency room. Um, there's other roles that geriatricians play outside of primary care where you probably get to see different levels of acuity as well which ultimately kind of boils down to the fact that older adults are the folks that use medical services most often. So if you're uh, in the hospital as a geriatrician, you're going to be seeing a lot of um, acutely ill and complex older adults. Some geriatricians end up kind of doing exclusively or at least a subset of their care in the nursing home setting or in a, in a skilled rehab center. And so you're going to be seeing folks kind of just coming out of the hospital or sometimes kind of moving in there for their final address which had different levels of complexity and acuity depending on where folks are in that process. I'm assuming as as a primary care specialty for that specific population that you're running the gamut with everything that you're seeing. I mean, you talked about the infected toenail and everything else. Are there any specific pathologies, diseases, 
that you're seeing because it's uh, it's an elderly population? Oh yeah, that's a good question, and I think very true. I share this term just in case it's not widely known, but it's also maybe like simplistic enough to sound silly. But there, there's this idea in geriatrics called geriatric syndromes, which are kind of these symptoms that are the end result of myriad processes, and they tend to commonly present in older adults. And I see a lot of them in the primary care setting. And so, so these are things that that you might think about as you're thinking about an older adult, or maybe maybe not, but uh, memory loss or cognitive impairment or dementia or somewhere along that um, disease spectrum. An acute delirium would fall into that category. Dizziness or imbalance would fall into that category. Falls, osteoporosis, vision loss, hearing loss, urinary incontinence. The way that these patients get to those problems, the way that a person ends up with urinary incontinence may, not, may be very different than the way a different older adult ends up with urinary incontinence, but the end result is the same. Mm. They've got one of these syndromes that kind of commonly uh, afflicts folks in that population. Describe a typical day. I, it appeals to me that I don't usually have a typical day, but uh, my typical day in the clinic, I probably see somewhere between seven and 10 older adult patients in, in any given half day. I most commonly get 30 minutes with them, which I value. Um, and I think I've been really fortunate to be at an institution that gives me that flexibility. I get to spend a little more time with each of the folks that comes in to see me. Most of those folks are there for like regular check-ins and then a smattering of people that are there for more um, urgent visits. But for my regular check-ins, I, I kind of have a process where I get some interval history. I do a medication review. I find that medications is probably one of the biggest challenges in that uh, setting. I usually will touch on kind of a functional assessment just to make sure there's not been any significant change since the last time I saw those patients and come up with the plan. And for some of those visits, the plan is not a whole lot. Like if they seem to be doing really great and the current medication regimen and the current social support is all um, seems optimized, it may just be state of course. And sometimes it's very like detailed and bulleted and big print, uh, things that we've got to change and work on and um, resources to mobilize and that type of thing. Do you have to take a lot of call? That um, that depends. The way that our practice works, we cover our own patients that are um, admitted to the hospital. So we sort of, um, as a, as a group, um, do the hospital care for anybody in our in our clinic that has to go into the hospital, and we cover for a week at a time. And so um, it works out to about once every seven or eight weeks. I do seven twenty four hours uh, in a row, and and during that time period, I and both um, kind of responsible for um, the care of our hospitalized patients, but also kind of um, covering covering phone calls and stuff overnight. It's made more possible by the fact that we have, um, I have uh, learners that work with me, you know, I get residents that kind of often take first pass at the phone calls or evaluate patients before I get contacted about them, but kind of a concentrated period of very busyness, uh, very, very busy uh, patient care and long hours. And then I go back to having uh, you know, six or seven weeks without without having to take any phone call. And what you described sounds like the the old school way of of primary care medicine, where you you take care of your patients in the hospital. But with the advent of hospitalists, that's kind of gone away. Why has, why are the hospitalists not taking care of your patients in the hospital? This is a good question. I think pr- probably um, just because we've we've chosen to to keep it that way. Maybe this is a little bit of a broad response, but I, it seems to me that the two places in which that kind of old old fashioned model, as you as you correctly put it, um, still exist 
tend to either be in academic settings uh, or in rural settings. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, we're an academic center. And, and I think one of the things that we hope our residents will uh, be able to take away is either to be able to do care in a setting where they would need to do hospital care, or if they end up in uh, kind of a more typical primary care practice to recognize which patients you know need hospital care and sort of be able to appropriately get them into the hospital when the time is there and being able to like successfully um, take the care back over from the folks that provide care in the hospital after they're discharged. Yeah, that's good. So it's just a, a, a lot of it is a little training trick to keep this, the, the residents abreast of, of what goes on in the hospital and, and to notice yeah. those, those things. Do you feel like you have enough time for family outside of the hospital and clinic? Yes. I think that it might depend on when you ask me that question. There, there are times when I feel like a really, really great work-life balance um, and times where I'm quite a bit more stressed. Right now, with my current kind of division of, of work responsibilities, the, the piece that's more variable for me is my kind of student education and uh, uh, clerkship administration responsibilities. There's just times of the year when those are kind of ebb and flow. Uh, periods where we're kind of on autopilot as some of the groups come through, but then either as we're gearing up for the n- next year and figuring out what we're going to change, or as we implement those changes at the start of the new year, it's very it gets very busy and the hours get longer and responding to emails and brainstorming and writing up syllabi and stuff uh, after hours becomes more common in those busy times. Yeah. What does the training path look like after medical school to become a geriatrician? There's probably... A few different ways that you could do it, but I would I think the m- two most typical is that you do a um, residency in either internal medicine, which is usually a three or four year program, or in family medicine, which is what I did, which is typically a three year program, and then you go on to do additional training and fellowship in uh, in geriatrics. That can vary also. There's there's programs that anywhere from one year up to about three years, and the the longer programs, the three year two or three year programs tend to include more palliative care training and more research opportunities. Whereas the one years are kind of focused on geriatric principles, most specifically, and maybe uh, geared less towards folks who kind of want to have research as a primary part of their life experience. How competitive is it? Very program dependent, but overall not very competitive. Um, It's uh, without hoping not to dissuade anybody. It's one of the few instances where you can choose to do additional training and the result is that you um, have less earning potential because <laughs> <laughs> you you end up with a population that that's primarily insured by Medicare which tends to pay less than, um, than private insurers and who require kind of longer visits or longer hospital stays or whatever the case may be so you have like lower volume that you can provide care for and so it, you sort of have to have the mindset of it, of it calling to you, you know, it feeling like the, it feels, it feels like your goals is to do that care regardless of kind of the uh, financial impact. Uh, it may be well suited to you. Once you become a specialized in geriatric medicine, are there any further opportunities to subspecialize and, and maybe make less money? <laughs> uh, the, the answer is that probably, um, <laughs> I remember at some point seeing a slide, I can't remember where this was even, so I hope I'm not misquoting it, but like the one of the few special specialties that there was both fewer of and earned less than geriatricians were geriatric psychiatrists. <laughs> some some avenue to doing that is probably going to end up with uh, less earning potential and more time under your belt. But kind of in practice, the thing that I see more, more commonly is maybe people pair geriatrics with some 
other um, training to kind of expand the scope of their care. Two things that, that seem to fit pretty common. One is like palliative care and, and hospice services so that you're not just doing geriatrics, but you're also kind of managing patient symptoms and end-of-life care. That also often has a, a fellowship training involved, but kind of opens different doors. You might, instead of doing primary care or nursing home care, you might be a hospice um, director or do sort of pain management and palliation in the outpatient setting. The second is in wound care. It's a place that a lot of a lot of older adults deal with kind of as arterial disease increases in frequency and venous problems and diabetes and all the things that put you at risk for uh, wounds on your legs and on your bottom increase. Uh, the opportunity for wound care increases too. So if you had training and interest in doing that, that actually has quite a bit of earning potential. One of my, one of the folks I trained with um, is doing primarily wound care and making a handy living and really enjoys it. But I think another place you have to be kind of uniquely interested to deal with wounds all day. <laughs> you, you, you shouldn't have a very sensitive olfactory system. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> probably, or, or maybe like visual system. There's probably a lot of ways yeah. that you could be offended by the wounds if yeah. you are geared towards it. For the, the future primary care physician who's not taking care of the older adults, what do they need to know that that you do, that geriatricians do to to better serve the their aging population to maybe understand when it's time to hand off to to a geriatric medicine specialist? Yeah, that's a great question. And one that I spent a lot of time thinking about and don't even know if I've come up with a total total right answer. I think that there, there are times when patients would benefit from a geriatrician. I don't mean to, to downplay that, and I'll talk about those in a moment. But I think that because there aren't enough geriatricians to take care of the geriatric population, you know, it's, it's like a, it's a specialty of which there are not a ton of, and it's a, it's a population in which there are a ton of and, uh, and growing. It's probably going to be the case that most folks are not going to have access to a geriatrician. Most patients are not going to have access to a geriatrician for their care. And so I sort of feel like that was one of the things that called me towards my the academic part of my life. Because even if I can't kind of impact the care of uh, lots of older adults directly, if I can provide sort of some geriatric principles and things to keep in mind as you're making decisions on behalf of your older patients, regardless of the specialty that you go into, um, then I think ultimately I've kind of bolstered the care of uh, older adults in a much broader sense, you know, if, if the medical students and residents that come through, keep in mind a handful of nuggets, which I hope is true, although who knows, um, about geriatrics care, and they take it into the, the, the field that they do end up going into practice, they hopefully will make an impact on those patients. But to get back to your original question, it's like, when do you know it's time to seek out the care of an older adult? In practice, I think it probably boils down to one of two uh, realms. The first is when cognition fails. It's a place that I think uh, primary care docs generally could and often do provide care, but it's also a, a place in which um, there's, there's probably a lot of insecurity and, um, and that patients and their families want a lot of answers, and there's not always a lot of answers to be given. And so kind of having some familiarity with the pathophysiology and the ongoing um, research and the local community support and resources um, is really is really beneficial. And so, um, even if the part that I'm able to offer that another primary doc isn't is just kind of to give a name to the dementing illness um, and 
kind of some sense of the natural course of the disease process and to normalize the family's experience of their loved one's mind slipping, um, it tends to go a long way. And is often, is often a reason that folks kind of send patients to me for their care. The other is when there's so many concurrent problems that the patients don't kind of fit neatly into the usual workflow in a primary care clinic where, where the visits are 10 or 15 or 20 minutes. And for some uh, older patients, you know, it can take 15 minutes to sit down and kind of take their bags of medications out of their <laughs> walker seat and get weighed. And so then, the, of course, the visit is over and you haven't really accomplished anything. Yeah. And so I think um, that's another time when I see I see, folk, I see patients getting referred is when there just kind of needs to, there, there's a benefit to having somebody on the receiving end that's kind of like has a process and a, and a training in place to kind of a better deal with somebody that's got all those um, concurrent issues. What other specialties do you work the closest with? Probably um, my geriatric colleagues on the internal medicine side of things um, um, is, is one group, although I, probably to some extent it's the same specialty, but uh, we have a nice working relationship with the geriatric section in internal medicine, which and they tend to do a little bit more of the, the research at Wake Forest into geriatrics, and um, they also do some of the ongoing uh, nursing home care, but we'll kind of pull resources and um, share patients in some respects. The other, the other groups are like kind of uh, folks that target some of those geriatric syndromes when I have done kind of the stuff that I am able to and know how to do and they're still having symptoms. So um, I have a couple wound care docs that I know well and rely on. I've got a couple urogynecologists that um, kind of specialize in urinary incontinence and interventions that are needed that are very beneficial. There's a one or two neurologists that kind of focus on movement disorders that I find uh, very helpful um, when the when the reason for the gait disturbance is is more than um, just kind of usual aging, but instead they've got some some underlying neurologic uh, condition like Parkinson's disease or something along those lines. Are there any special yeah. opportunities outside of clinical medicine for a geriatrician? You mentioned like nursing home medicine. That's kind of unique, but anything yeah. else? Yes, I, I think that there there are some unique opportunities, and um, and probably like to to be what you make of them. You know, I think that kind of like you were mentioning with the hospitalists, there's more and more settings where there's the doctor for that location. You know, like the uh, nursing home medicine that the term that you sometimes hear applied to those people now are sniffists, sniffists, field nurse, ability doc sniffists, and. Uh, there's like the same kind of um, role for um, homebound patients and assisted living facility patients. That's usually like like home care uh, physicians, folks doing house calls. Kind of, there's another another thing old fashioned. Maybe like the reason why we some of us do geriatrics because we like um, kind of old fashioned. At heart. Holding, on, holding on to the past. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Get your black bag of <laughs> go out there. And then and then I think you see a lot of a lot of geriatricians have some foot in one of two worlds, um, either, either research, because it's an area that there's a lot of unanswered questions, both because there's, there's some disease processes we don't have good treatments for, like probably the biggest example of that are, are the dementing illnesses and some of the cancers out there that affect older adults. Another reason, though, is, is that like a lot of the disease entities that we do have good treatments for, you know, things like simple things like hypertension and diabetes and COPD, uh, the, the ways that those treatments were developed were kind of like studies that looked at patients that tended to have those 
problems in isolation or those problems like just co-occurring with one or two other problems. And so we know kind of like the best treatment for a patient who just has hypertension. But is that the same best treatment in a, in a patient who's got hypertension and falls recurrently and also has diabetes and their vision doesn't work and they've had a stroke and, you know, like some of those types of questions about um, how do you target a single entity and somebody who's got multiple different conditions have yet to be answered. So research is kind of one area-wise see a lot of geriatricians go. And the second is is in uh, academics and in education for some of those same reasons I was mentioning. I think that like appeals to to be able to share some of these some of these guiding principles for taking care of older adults with like a broader a broader group of docs um, to then to then reach kind of like a broader group of patients then then we'll be able to reach directly. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into geriatrics? <laughs> I think um, one thing, and maybe maybe the, the only thing that so far can allow me to ask that question is, you probably can't be efficient and do geriatrics, or at least that's what I tell myself when I'm inefficient. Um, <laughs> it's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> I pictured I pictured that like one of the things I would learn, or kind of a skill that I would gain through time, would be how to navigate clinic visits with older adults with more uh, aplomb or kind of like state on a set schedule. And uh, it's all, it always eludes me, you know, there's just, even, even with these, even with my patients who kind of come in as I suggest to them and, and do routine follow-up, it, it ends up being a population um, that kind of has a lot of stuff crop up between visits. And so, and so you often have things to address that you didn't anticipate to address. And so, uh, and so, like, maybe just to be able to tell my earlier self, uh, that's a goal that you're not going to be able to achieve. <laughs> just be okay with being inefficient and remind yourself that, like, the, the goal is to kind of provide the best care possible for these patients. You just have to ignore HIPAA and start your history on the way back as they're, <laughs> as they're shuffling on their way back to the room. I like said to say I've, d- I've done that before. <laughs> before I had a room open, I would go talk to them while they're being away. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you like the most about being a geriatrician? Oh, it's the patients. You know, I think, um, I think in general, being a family doc, um, but, but kind of especially bolstered by, by having the, the depth of interaction I do with my older adults, like the a thing that you gain is like the relational aspect of, of medicine. Um, you know, just kind of knowing, knowing patients over time, um, getting to meet their families, getting to find out like what is important to them. Um, uh, like a conversation that I get to have frequently, which um, I think I would, I might've thought would, would be morbid or could tend morbid, but I find to be very enlightening and kind of like uh, affirming is to talk about goal, goal setting, like end of life care, even if someone's not there, you know, kind of just talking about what, what do you value as you approach your last years of life and how do I, how can I help you maintain those, those parts of your life? Um, I think it kind of results in, in feeling kinship and closeness with the patients that I take care of. Yeah. What do you like the least? I think that, that probably somehow it's like the flip side of that. You know, the, the, uh, a piece that kind of makes general family medicine mentally uh, a part of what makes general family medicine kind of like uh, persistently stimulating is that you you could you can walk into uh, one room and you have like a simple cold and you walk into the next room and you've got some acute issue you walk into the next room and you've got one of these older adults that I'm describing and for me like some of those 
some of those simple visits are not part of my regular practice, you know. So, so kind of just a, a picture would be kind of, again, in my, I mean, my ideal, in the ideal world would be kind of nice to have some some subset of those visits that you could accomplish in five minutes and and feel like you had you had uh, closed the loop on the condition that brought them into the office. Do you see any major changes coming to the field, whether it's new therapeutics or technological advances that a student maybe should be looking at? There are lots of technological advances that are impacting my patients' care routinely. Um, so I get to see the fruits, even though I don't always, I'm not always involved in the administering or implanting of those things. But you know, the w- the way they do lens implants after cataract removals seems like it's always changing. The way they, the ways that they can treat urinary incontinence, including in men after like prostate surgery, being able to put in artificial urinary sphincters, really cool. I think. The, the technology behind hearing aids and kind of that those have been more successful in the times that I've been working with older adults has been neat to see. Some of the technology behind the wound care that they offer, like some of the wound dressings and the way they're revascularizing uh, limbs um, is really neat. So I get to more see kind of how it impacts my patient's function and well-being than get to do them. But um, those are all places that I'm sure students will, will sort of encounter as they're going through their training. Yeah, And then I like another Another shift that I see probably will impact geriatric care, at least geriatric primary care. In the future is there seems to be this this um, uh, push towards risk-based care. I'm probably using the wrong term. This is not like an area that I find myself an expert, but but this idea that insurers are going to pay healthcare systems like a set amount to take care of patients based on kind of their, their cumulative risk. So, uh, uh, these older adult patients will probably have a lot of risk because they have multiple conditions and they all pinch save impact on their health and chance of being hospitalized and so forth. And um, and kind of being able to use that money to provide care in a way that makes sense. Like, I don't know how, probably haven't done a good job explaining that, but currently, like, there's some financial incentive to seeing patients in the office because that's, like, kind of how I generate an office visit charge and we do a facility charge. In that other model, like the incentive will probably be in, to provide care to the patient in the way that makes the most sense for them. And so, like, maybe that means an office visit every so often, but maybe also having, like, a case manager involved if that's going to help keep them at home and out of the hospital. And maybe doing, like, telephone uh, care or um, having, like, a video feed that you could do it over the, com- the computer without them having to come in to the office every so often if they were, like, not mobile or didn't have transportation because if the goal is just to like provide the best care as opposed to like generate the most office charges um, to do the best care that you can with the, with the money you have allotted for it, I think it may kind of impact the way we provide care to older adults. Yeah, That's, it sounds very familiar. I, th- I think, isn't it DRGs where you get a, a certain lump sum for a specific diagnosis, mostly in the hospital? Yes. And, uh-huh. and you, you get that money and, and the hope is that the hospital then treats uh, efficiently instead of just trying to rack up as many charges as possible. Yes, it's always probably lots of ways in which it could be misutilized. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a geriatrician? Yeah, I think so. It's open. It's open a lot of cool, a lot of cool doors for me. Kind of help help shape the way my career looks. And most days, I'm very happy with it. Any last words of wisdom for the medical student, or maybe the the internal medicine or family medicine resident out there looking at geriatrics? I would say be open to the learning opportunities. There's not going to be any 
shortage of them. I think in either of those two fields, family medicine or internal medicine, you can interact with a lot of older adults. And even if you decide that doing a fellowship training in geriatrics is not for you, although I hope you do, um, you know, kind of like soak, soak up every nugget of, of uh, every kernel of treatment wisdom that you can as you're going through your training, because uh, those are the those are the patients that are probably going to take up the the most of your brain power, like the majority of your time as you're practicing afterwards. All right, so there you have it again. That was Dr. Scott Harper, a geriatric medicine specialist from family practice training into geriatrics. If you didn't know anything about geriatrics, well, now you do. If you were thinking about geriatrics, hopefully you are thinking about it even more now. As our population ages, we need more geriatric medicine specialists out there to take care of our aging population. It may not be the most glamorous, may not be the highest paid, but it is a great and hopefully rewarding career for you in the future. Hope you have a great day and a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. 